Good morning. Good morning. Well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your truth, for your spirit, for Jesus. We ask that you will join us now as we study your word, that your will will be done in our hearts, our minds, our families, our communities, and on earth, that we might see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So Sabbath lesson, the lesson begins by pointing out uh, how God initiates mission and relationships and that God created life, angels, Adam and Eve, and after sin, God sought Adam out. God went on a mission to reach fallen humanity, to reconnect, to provide all that's necessary to save and restore humans back into sinless perfection. And the lesson, the lesson says, or in the um, in the Sabbath lesson, the foundation of any mission endeavor, therefore, must be centered on a relationship with the Creator and with the proper understanding of His missionary nature and character. But before we can understand the mission of God, it is essential to better understand the God of mission. So what does it mean to build a relationship with the creator, to understand his missionary nature and character and his mission? To know him, to know his character, to stand what his mission is. Would you say to to know the, the God of creation is related to the three angels' messages? Yes, calling people back to worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea. At the AACC, a nice young man came up to me and asked about the mark of the beast in our Unmasking the Beast of Revelation 13, 17 magazine. He wanted to know if someone who was saved could get the mark of the beast. That's what he asked. Uh, You know, in your magazine, can someone who's been saved get the mark of the beast? What would you say to that? Yes. So, do you notice you all you all kind of fell into a trap because you answered yes or no? Oh, yeah. I asked him, "Tell me what it means to be saved." Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> what does it mean to be saved? Uh, so, and, and he just looked there and he couldn't put it in words. So I I started articulating possibilities and I said. Uh, Do you mean uh, someone who's made a proclamation of faith in Jesus, uh, has been baptized into a church, has identifies as a Christian, has joined a Christian church even, and and even is going on missions to do uh, work in in communities and so forth in the name of Jesus? He thought that sounded right. He said, yes, yes, that sounds right. That sounds like somebody who's saved. I said, then what about Matthew 7, 22 and 23? These are Jesus' words, not mine. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Are are the people that Jesus is describing who are doing this in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Buddha, are these people Christian? He didn't know how to answer that. He wasn't sure that the people that Jesus is referring to here were actually Christian. So I pointed out the parable of the ten virgins, who the the ten virgins represent the church. Five were wise, but five were foolish. And the foolish um, represent those who don't have any oil in their lamps, and they're not led into the kingdom. But they're virgins. They're members of the church. Would they be Christians? He didn't know how to answer that either. I pointed then to the church before 
or at the time of Christ's walking on earth before uh, Christ's death and resurrection. I pointed to the church leadership, which was Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests, and, and who believed that they were fulfilling the teachings that God wrote in the Testament, who were anointed as high priests and believed they were anointed by God, but yet they crucified Jesus. I said, were they saved? I pointed to the Christians in the Dark Ages who went on the Crusades and burned people at the stakes in the, in the stake of name of Jesus. Were they saved? They claimed to be followers of Jesus. Were they Christian? Were they saved? This, so this is the, the pathway that I went down with him. So the point is, can people identify themselves as Christian, make a profession of faith, go through ritual baptism, join the church organization that they believe is God's church, that's the one they join, uh, engage in activities that are mission-oriented uh, and to advance what they understand the gospel to be, yet can those people doing all that still be unsaved and be working against God, working actually for God's enemy, be an evildoer, as Christ said, and even hold church office. Can all of that be true still? Yeah. Yes. So then can a person who's saved receive the mark of the beast? Well, again, it depends on what you mean by saved. What does it mean to be saved? So we talked about a new heart and right spirit yeah. being reborn. Having the heart. Yes. So this already got me thinking about uh, Psalms uh, 51, 10. Create in me. You created me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. But people leave it there. They don't go to the next verse, which says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. you so this is exactly what we talked about. Mm -hmm. We talked about being reborn, having a new heart and right spirit, having the heart circumcised by the Holy Spirit, having the law written upon the heart and mind, the various metaphors of Scripture. And all of that is also described as Paul coming from the, the Holy Spirit, which is our seal, being sealed by the Holy Spirit into being settled both in heart, mind, character, to be loyal to God and his methods, like Job, who was so settled he couldn't be shaken from it. Such people, then, do not receive the mark of the beast because they've received the seal of God in their heart, minds, and characters. But he said to me, after I said all that, but sometimes I don't do what's right. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I get irritable. Sometimes I say mean words that I really don't mean, but they come out of my mouth. Am I lost? What would you say to that? No, no, no you're not lost. Ask questions. Ask questions. So I pointed him to Romans chapter 7. And the things that I, I don't want to do, sometimes I find myself doing the things that I, I want to do, I don't do. Oh, what wretched man am I who's going to save me from the body of death? Pointing out that when we are converted, we get a new heart desire with love and loyalty to God, and we want to live victorious. But that new heart, that new desire, that renewed soul is still operating on the platform of old wiring, habit pa patterns, dysfunctional neurobiology that we have conditioned through years of sinful living before we were reborn with a new heart. And sometimes in certain situations, reflexively, conditioned responses will come out where we react in ways that we didn't intend to. And this is what it says. When I do that, it's not me doing it. It's the old man doing it. It's the old conditioned responses. But as we continue to walk with Christ, the brain rewires and eventually we're 
freed from those types of things. So no, the difference between the unconverted is when they do the unhealthy things, they actually justify it. That other person deserved it. They blame the other person. Whereas the converted man, when they have those old habits intrude, they are convicted and they go to Jesus, oh, I am still so weak and I'm still so broken. Please fix me. I don't want to be this way anymore. And that's the difference. That was the difference between Saul and David as well. David, when he was confronted, said, you're right, I'm wrong. Saul made excuses for himself at least two times documented uh, in the Bible where it talked about Saul being confronted by a, about his behavior, his lack of following God's instructions. Exactly. So what do you think now, after I've gone through this whole kind of recreated conversation, what do you think the root of this individual's concern was? And how do you see me handling it? Where was he coming from and where did I take him? Does the law lens have any impact on that? Yes. So what does it mean to be saved from the imposed law lens? The human law lens, the legal lens. What's it mean to be saved? Having your account paid, having your your you know sin debt paid by the right pen, penalty being um, you know punished on somebody else and all that stuff, versus worshiping the Creator, which is what we're talking about this week. How do we worship the Creator, the Builder of reality? God is not just the Builder; He's also the Sustainer, holding all things together. And His laws are the laws that reality function upon, what we call design laws. And if you break them, the Bible teaches repeatedly, it results, the outcome, the consequence is ruin and death. It's not an infliction. You can't have life outside the laws that life are built to operate upon. And so God is working through Christ to eliminate the breaches in his law and restore us from death to life. That's what it means to be saved. Thus, the mission of God, as we're talking about today, is redemptive, saving, healing, transforming, cleansing, recreating. And salvation means to be reborn, healed, cleansed, transformed, renewed, restored, ultimately sealed in heart and mind to be like Jesus and united with Jesus. But if one holds the human law model, imposed rules that require the rule giver to use power to torture and kill, then one is not one. Get your mind what I'm about to say. If that's your view of God, you are never one back to trust in that God. These people and these theology professors and these pastors who teach that God must kill, they never trust that God. What they trust is the mechanisms to propitiate that God, whether it's a human works, a penance, a ceremony, a sacrament, or the works of an intercessor who stands between you and that God and pleads and makes the right blood payment to that God in your behalf. But they actually never trust that God because without that mechanism, without that mechanic in place, they believe that God will be required to kill them. That's what they believe, and that's what they teach, and that's what much of the theology professors in the church that I was raised in teach and believe. Worse, through the law of worship, by beholding we become changed, when we worship an authoritarian dictator who inflicts pain and suffering for rule-breaking, then we become more authoritarian and more willing to use such methods on other people, and we've seen that in this denominational church over the last three years when authoritarian measures were used actually goes back at least 10 or 15 years. Compliance committees, uh, rules uh, from on high, authority, um, do it or else there's consequence, etc. So what does it then mean to be marked beastly? This was the question. Can someone save, get marked the beast? Not if they're actually saved because they're sealed to God and nothing will shake them from it. But if you have the 
idea that save means you've accepted a legal penalty paid in your behalf and you're worshiping a creature rather than the creator, then you're actually not saved and you become like that God. So what does it mean to be marked beastly? It means to mark yourself in character and behavior to function like the beast using his methods and how you live and treat other people. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph says, God created us in his image and likeness. He gave us a perfect world. And his purpose was that we would live in perfect connection with him, a relationship centered in his most precious attribute, love. But for love to be real, God also gave us another precious gift, free will, the freedom to choose which way to follow. Of course, God gave clear instructions to Adam and Eve about the danger and deadly consequences of disobedience. Satan, in turn, deceptively persuaded Eve that she could eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but without any negative results. On the contrary, he claimed that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. Unfortunately, Eve chose to eat and gave the fruit to Adam, who made the same choice. The perfect creation then was stained by sin. This is so well said. I want to just, sometimes people say, you criticize the quarterly so much. Well, I want to call them out when they say it well and, and, and represent it well. This is well said. The lesson emphasizes that God is love. And this is absolutely right. And then they emphasize that love can only exist in an atmosphere of freedom. Absolutely right. And how God in love warned Adam and Eve of the deadly consequences of sin, not the deadly inflicted punishment from God. They are so right for, for, for articulating it this way. And how Satan deceived. And what happens when lies are believed to the relationship of love and trust? Lies believed do what to a relationship built on love and trust? If you believe lies about a person? Lies break the circle of love and trust and incite fear and selfishness. And this is Satan, the father of lies. And when they believe lies that God was trying to keep them down, didn't have their best interests at heart, uh, that, that they could actually achieve more by deviating from his design laws and plan for life, that's those lies broke the circle of love and trust and led to self-seeking or self-interest which is what hurt them. Now notice the next two paragraphs. That moment changed God's original plan and purpose for the newly created planet Earth. The mission of salvation, which had been designed before the foundation of the world, had now to be implemented. Of course, God knew exactly where they were, dominated by fear. Adam and Eve were the ones who needed to see what was going on. But they also needed to be confronted so they could understand the dreadful consequences of their sin. Satan also needed to be defeated for that God then began to present his mission, his plan of redemption, the only hope of reconciling the world to himself. Again, this is well said. Well said. Notice where they're putting the emphasis, the action. God didn't need to be reconciled to us. The world needed to be reconciled to him. They didn't understand their need. They were infected with fear. Fear causes self-centeredness. God had to pursue them because they were running and hiding from him. All of this is well said. I had a discussion this week of, or last week about somebody who believed that Christ forgave everybody. He forgave everybody. That even Judas will be in heaven and all these things because God forgives us and forgives unconditionally and so on. And I was saying... Let's see what Jesus said about it. And, and so put, put in quotes that Jesus said, 
doing his will, you know, actually following up and doing what God asked you to do is a component that that gets left out in that kind of uh, framework where God just forgives you no matter who you are, what you've done or anything, because he's a loving and forgiving God. And a lot of people are relying on forgiveness alone and they don't read the rest of the story. As you mentioned earlier, I did this and this and this in your name, but you know, my heart's not changed. So Linda, there is a perfect opportunity. Their whole, their entire premise is based on believing the lie about God's law. If you think the, the problem with sin is that you're in legal trouble and that the ruling authority is the one who inflicts the deadly punishment and that ruling authority pardons you, and if God is a God who pardons or forgives everyone, then everyone's saved because the problem comes from him. That's, so that's where they're coming from because they have the wrong law model. The question that really opens this up, it's very quite clear, is when you get to design model, because they're correct. God does forgive everyone. But forgiving everyone doesn't mean everyone receives the forgiveness and has a new heart, right spirit generated in. Doesn't mean they become trustworthy, faithful, loyal friends of God. As evidenced on the cross, when Jesus, who has the authority to forgive sins, forgave those who were crucified him, they did not suddenly become his friends and seek to get him off the cross and protect him. They remained his enemies. And so when you have the legal model, then it's all about the, the legal pardon or forgiveness of the ruling authority. When you have the true model of the creator God, then it, we recognize the problem was never in God. He was never an unforgiving, angry, wrathful being. The problem was always in human beings who are now deviant or defective from God's design, filled with a death-causing principle, fear, and selfishness. And the plan for, for salvation has to be restoring the life-causing principles back into humanity. And that's what God is doing. And of course, that could not happen if God was unforgiving if God was unforgiving, then he wouldn't seek to restore anyone. He would seek to punish people. But because God is forgiving, he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. And he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that is what the reality is. And so it was a perfect opportunity to help them see that their, their conclusions are fraudulent or flawed because they have an underlying law premise that they're trying to understand the problem through. And so it goes back to all all situations in life, whether it's your car breaking down or a doctor seeing a person who's sick, if your diagnosis of the problem is wrong, then your solution for the problem is wrong. And this person's diagnosis is that the problem is legal with the ruling authority. And since God forgives, that's the truth. He does forgive everyone. But since they don't understand the problem, they think that then equates with everyone being saved. And that's false. So this is back to the diagnosis question. When Adam and Eve sinned, God did not get changed. God's law did not get changed. The actual condition of Adam and Eve changed. They were no longer loyal, faithful, loving friends of God. They were now filled with fear and selfishness, running and hiding from him, willing to sacrifice others to protect themselves. And so understanding this, however you describe the plan of salvation, whatever actions that Christ achieves for our salvation do not have to be applied to God. He's perfect same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, do not have to be applied to God's law. It's perfect. Whatever the, the action, the change has to be done in sinners. God does not need to be fixed, updated, amended, changed, or reconciled to sinners. We sinners need to be fixed, updated, amended, changed, healed, cleansed, restored, reconciled back to God. And that's what the plan of salvation is doing.
Does that make sense to everyone? Mm-hmm. Understand the legal models of things always have God needing to be acted upon by Christ or Christ's blood or ritual or sacrament or ceremony or works or something. God needs to be acted upon for God to be updated, changed, to propitiate his wrath, to assuage his anger, to achieve some sense of justice, to satisfy his demands, whatever. And it's all pagan. But it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I guess that explains, too, at the, at the time how many people are surprised that they aren't saved because they were told all this time that this would save you, that would save you, and then they find out, no, I actually needed to be changed by God. So let's take this a step further uh, and ask then the question, why did Jesus have to become human? Tuesday's lesson is ask, uh, focuses on that question. So we're into Tuesday's lesson. Why did God, God the Son, have to become one with us, Emmanuel, God with us? And it's a very straightforward and simple answer. It really is. Reality required it if human beings were going to be saved. The only way to save human beings was to fix what was broken in human beings. And once Adam and Eve sinned, the species human were all born of Adam and Eve, who themselves were now in a terminal condition. The Bible says dead in trespass and sin. But it is a condition that without remedy results in death. The only way to save human sinners is to eliminate the sin condition from human beings. This required action of a human being. The actions that were required are the following. Truth must be revealed in a way human beings can comprehend it and accept it in order to destroy the lies that broke the trust in the first place and win us back to trust in God. The truth about God, the truth about sin, the truth about the results of sin, the truth about Satan. If an angel would have come instead of God and lived the same life we see in Jesus, we would learn how loving angels are, and we would also learn how God is willing to sacrifice subordinate creatures to protect himself, thus undermining our trust in God. So number one, in order to destroy the lies that Satan told about God, God himself had to reveal the truth of who he, he is to us. And he had to become one with us to meet us on our level where we were to reveal that truth to us. And not just us in Colossians 1, 18 to 20, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. This truth was being revealed to angels as well. But having restored us to trust by the revelation of truth, that doesn't remove the terminal condition. That only removes the distrust that keeps us from accepting the remedy that God provides. But we still need a remedy to replace the carnal nature with a holy nature, with a, a selfish character, with a pure character. And salvation of hum, human beings, uh, in addition to feeding the lies, requires a new, sinless, perfect, mature, righteous, human character. Character cannot be created. God can create sinless beings like angels or Adam and Eve, but both Lucifer and a third of the angels and Adam and Eve corrupted their characters. Characters are developed by the choices of the intelligent sapient being. In order to save the species human, Jesus had to become human to reveal the truth, and he had to exercise human abilities, a human brain, a human power of choice to trust and exercise faith in his father, to be tempted in all points like we are. Yet in the face of those temptations to choose with his human abilities to say no and to live out God's perfect design law of love in all of his actions and to ultimately go to the cross for the purpose of destroying 
the carnal drives with their selfish survival, the fittest, me first, do whatever you have to do to protect yourself with other-centered love. And thus Jesus took up humanity, damaged and broken by Adam, and purged the death-causing principle and restored perfectly in humanity the life-causing principle. These two actions, revealing the truth and developing a perfect, sinless human character, destroys the devil's power, Hebrews 2.14, destroys the sympathy for Satan with any heavenly angels who knew him before the rebellion, Colossians 1.18-20, through 20. destroys death and brings life and immortality to light, 2 Timothy 1.10, and destroys the carnal nature, the devil's work of replacing the image of God uh, with the satanic image, 1 John 3.8. And when we receive the truth, which is metaphorically, the bread or the flesh. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So receiving the flesh of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life is to receive the truth of who God is and the truth of what he's revealed. And when we receive the truth, it becomes building blocks of our belief system, displaces the lies and wins us to trust. We open the tr- our hearts in trust then we receive the new life, which is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11, which is represented by the wine and the blood. The life is in the blood. We get a new heart and right spirit with new desires of righteousness, with righteous motives. We want to honor God. We want to love others. We don't want to act to protect self. And then as we choose to live out those new principles, we receive divine power of the Holy Spirit that we succeed in living those new principles. And it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. We have the mind of Christ. This is actually how the whole plan works. It's objective. It's reality-based. It's not magic. And it's why Jesus had to become human. It was the only way to fix the damage Adam did to our creation. I'll pause there and take questions. So, Tim, did, did he take on the nature of Adam, like a sinless Adam? So this is the classic trap question that you will get in theology professors. It's called prelapsarian and postlapsarian. Prelapsarian means before Adam lapsed into sin, so is his nature, or postlapsarian after Adam fell into sin. Which nature? One like ours? One, and it's a trap because it's neither. You see, look at Adam's nature. Adam was created out of the dirt of the earth, the dust of the ground, the mud of the earth, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a perfect, sinless human being. And Eve was taken from Adam's side, another perfect, sinless human being. You and I came into the world from a sinful mother and a sinful father. Psalms 51, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, with two parents giving us their their own nature, so to speak, all of their propensities and dispositions, and that's what we're born with. Jesus' humanity did not come into this world in any of those ways exactly. God did not create a new body out of mud and breathe into him the breath of life to create the body or the humanity of Jesus. God did not take Jesus from the side of a sinless human being. And, God, and Jesus' humanity did not have a sinful mother or a sin, and a sinful father. Jesus partook of our nature as we inherit it from our parents through his mother, Galatians 4, 4, who is born of a woman under law, the law of sin and death. That, and so he could be tempted in all ways, just like we are. But his father was the Holy Spirit. So he was born with a capacity to be tempted in every way like we are, in which Adam was not. But he was also born with the capacity to resist and say no, which we in our strength cannot do. And he was born with that capacity to resist those things through his trust, faith with God. The best analogy for us 
would be he was born from Mary in the condition that we're reborn into when we give our hearts to Jesus. We now have a new heart and a new desire and new motives to resist and say no to the the carnal nature. That's where he was born at birth. If he was born with the Holy Spirit giving him more power to overcome temptation, then he did have an advantage. Not more power. This is the point. Everything he did, he he did with the same power available to us. And available to Adam originally. I can see available to Adam, but, but... That's a different question. Let's stick with us and we'll come back to Adam. Adam actually had the power in his own strength without the additional aid of the Holy Spirit to resist. He had no carnal drives. He had no internal temptation. He had within his own self his own power to say no to temptation and overcome. He could have done that. So could have Eve. All of us do not have that power. We cannot resist. It requires us to be joined with the Holy Spirit. Jesus took upon himself a nature that required his dependence on his Father and the indwelling Spirit to empower his humanity, but he was born as an infant with that indwelling Holy Spirit empowering him. We get that indwelling Holy Spirit when we're reborn, uh, and that's the big difference. So it wasn't he didn't come with a nature like Adam's before the fall, and he didn't come with a nature like ours. And because he came uh, exactly like ours, but he came with he took up humanity and could be tempted in all points like we are. But because he had the Holy Spirit empowering him with a with a desire, so to speak, to live holy, when those temptations came, he always resisted them. So he never developed one single sinful habit. And if you actually look at the things you struggle with in life, are the greatest temptations that you've struggled with totally external to you where somebody presents a temptation to you, or the greatest temptations, the habits you've developed through life? Jesus never developed a bad habit. But he was able to be tempted in all points like we are because And what is the root of temptation? He was tempted with hunger. He was tempted with fatigue. He was tempted with impatience. He was tempted to to, uh, ultimately, the the root is to act in self-interest. That's the root. And in Gethsemane, he was overwhelmed with, and it says in James 1, no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted by evil. Therefore, Jesus' temptations were not against his divine nature. It was against his human nature. And uh, God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. Our own humanity tempts us to act in self-interest. In Gethsemane, Jesus' humanity overwhelmed him with powerful human emotions that tempted him to act to protect self. If it were possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. He tells us, I'm agonizing to the point of death. I don't want, I don't feel, I don't want emotionally to go through this, through this torment and cross. That was the temptation of the carnal nature that he took upon himself. Yet every time the temptation come, came, he said, not my will, thy will be done. No one can take my life. I will lay it down freely. And he chose, despite the temptation, to refuse to give in to the temptation and, in fact, to confront the temptation with trust in his Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And with love for God and for others, I will give my life so those might live. And that's how... In his humanity, he restored humanity back to God's original intention for it as God created it in Adam and Eve. Getting back to what Tina said, I agree that there is a legitimate question about Jesus having a better time of it because he was born, reborn. We're not. 
I asked that, my professor that many years ago, and his reply was, how many times do you sin? How many times could Christ have sinned? Because of what Jesus Christ did, I can be forgiven for many sins. He couldn't have been. If he had sinned, he would have stayed in the grave. So he didn't have an easier time either, because if you think about temptations, when did the temptations and sin in the world around you assault your mind, heart, and soul more? When you're unconverted or when you're converted? Converted. So, first paragraph Jesus' life and ministry were God's ultimate revelation. In about three years, God was able to reveal more about who he was and what his mission was all about than in all he had done through any other method in previous generations. Christ was the perfect image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness should dwell, having made peace through his blood on on his cross. In Christ, the missionary nature of God was completely made known. Jesus himself revealed his his mission saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you see this paragraph is actually succinctly describing what I just went through, what the purpose of Christ coming to earth was for. And then the last paragraph says, Christ's death was was part of the reconciliation process, not the end of it. Through his resurrection, Jesus conquered death and received all authority in heaven and earth. Based on this reality, he then commissioned all of his followers to make disciples around the world with an awesome promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, what I found interesting, where I want to take your mind, I think all of us would agree that without the life, death, and and resurrection of Christ, no one can be saved. And, And Christ was victorious at the cross and rose again and is now reigning in heaven. Yet, what the lesson said that the reconciliation process did not, that, the, that, that Christ's resurrection stuff was not the end of it. We all agree it's not the end yet, right? Then if it's not the end, what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? Why didn't he say, it's 85% complete, we're partly there, we're halfway home? Because his mission was, his mission was finished. He showed the character of God of love with what he did. So his mission well, And the remedy was complete. He restored. Remedy. remedy. Um, I like it. I, like, I don't disagree with anything you said. I, I want to recommend to you that if you have time this afternoon, you pull out the book, The Desire of Ages, and you read the chapter entitled, It is Finished. I think it is the best work ever done on expanding and describing what Christ meant. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but we're going to unpack some paragraphs from that chapter right now. Because this, and as we unpack these paragraphs from this book, I want you to consider how much of these ideas are what we believe, our design law, what Christ had to accomplish, what was finished. Just, just see, just see if you see how these, and what we're actually facing at the final events coming on the earth as the beast is rising and what we're going to have, have as a challenge. So starting on page 761, and this is, uh, right, right at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. 
By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathy of heavenly beings. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. You remember Jesus said, you know, I, if I be lifted up, will draw unto me now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world must be cast out. This is what this is commenting on here, that Satan had sympathy. You see it in the book of Job and other places where he is going into heaven and presenting his arguments still before loyal angels and trying to confuse them. At the cross, though, he exposed himself. He exposed himself as a liar, as a murderer, as a fraud. One of the things Christ finished at the cross was providing the evidence to reveal who he is also the evidence of why who is the source of death who was responsible for christ's death at the cross it was the murderer it was the source of death it was the destroyer it wasn't god and well and it also reveals what happens when god stops using power when god withdraws his presence when god lets go and at the cross what did god do to his son God did not use power to inflict punishment. God is not the source of death. He did not kill his son. What God did was he surrendered Jesus to freedom. He set Jesus free for Jesus to reap what Jesus chose himself. Jesus chose. Remember he said to Peter, he said, put up your sword. Don't you realize I can call 12 legions of angels and my father to live me? But how can I complete my mission if I do that? I'm going through with this. He chose to go through the cross. This was his purpose. He knew what he had to accomplish in order to honor his father, to uh, solidify the unfallen heavenly beings, and to destroy Satan as the liar and deceiver, to destroy death, to bring life and immortality to light. This was the path he had to go through. And the only way for him to achieve that was for the source of life to let go of him so that he could accomplish it. And so the father abandoned him, let him go on the cross so they could complete their joint mission of destroying sin and saving sinners. And Satan revealed himself as a murderer. But do you know how much of Christianity teaches it just the opposite? That God, in order to be just, had to use his power to execute Jesus as our substitute on the cross. I don't have time to give you those quotes today. I presented them many other times in this class. Next paragraph. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. And for the sake of humanity, for mankind, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. Have you ever thought about that? Well, if it was finished at the cross, why didn't we just wrap it up right then, to knock Satan down, get rid of him, and fix the whole thing? This author is taking the position because there was more to be revealed. There were greater stakes involved. For the sake of humanity, Satan must be, his existence must be continued. Do you understand what that means? One of the foundational lies that was not eliminated at the cross was the lie about God's law. That God makes up rules and he enforces those laws through inflicted punishments. This lie was not fully real, nor the consequence of law keeping as humans make law, rule keeping, legal religious behavior, all this stuff is not revealed fully at the cross. Notice the very next words. After this author says, this author says, the principles at stake were more to be more fully revealed. 
After she says that, the very next words in the next paragraph say, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared the law of God cannot be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urge Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. When men broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exalted. What kind of law requires external infliction of punishment? Human. Human law, imposed law, made up rules. If you're worshiping a deity whose law functions that way, that that deity is required to use power to inflict punishment, you're worshiping a creature. You're not worshiping the creator. Creator law does not require the creator to use power to inflict punishment when you break the law because breaking his law automatically severs your connection with life and results in death. This creator has to use power to redeem, to save, to heal, to restore, to fix, to resolve, to remedy the breaches in the law and restore us to life. This is why the Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect, bringing life to the soul. Next paragraph. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position than that from, of Satan. Consider, what, what, what different position? A different legal position? They had better, man didn't have a good, as good a lawyer, or Satan didn't have as good a lawyer? Uh, they have different judge? They have different, different jury? I mean, different, different position? Keep reading. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him as to know the created being was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, his methods, his principle, how his laws function, his character, how he works. Knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. But man was deceived. He didn't understand. He didn't comprehend. He didn't realize. He was tricked. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God, he did not know. For him, there was hope and a knowledge of God's love. For him, there was hope and a legal payment to assuage the father's wrath so the father won't kill us. No. For him, there is hope and the knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. If the problem were a legal problem of rule-breaking and legal enforcement, and the solution is the payment of the right legal uh, payment, which is the sinless blood of of a sinless sacrifice son of God, then such a solution should have been available to Satan. Why couldn't Satan claim the same legal payment? If that's what the problem was, because that was never the problem. It's not legal. Legal payments cannot solve it. The problem is reality. The problem is functional. The problem is actual. The problem is the condition of heart and minds. The problem is the method, motive, and law upon which we function and operate. And Satan rejected the law of love, the law of truth, the law of righteousness, the methods and designs of God. And he replaced it with the law of fear, of sin, of of death, of selfishness. But humanity was in a different position. Humanity was tricked, deceived. They didn't fully appreciate or reject the law of love. And there was hope for them. And the hope is being won back to trust by the revelation of truth of God. There's hope in the truth of God's character, winning humans back and restoring in us 
the living law of love, that we can be reconciled through faith to operate again on the principles God originally intended. Next paragraph. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifest to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. What do you hear that word to mean? As soon as you hear the word justice, you should immediately in your head go, what law lens am I defining that word through? Human justice is infliction of punishment. Godly justice is doing what's right because it's right. And what's the right thing to do when a loved one of yours is dying and you have a remedy? Even if the loved one is your child and they're dying because they uh, disobeyed your rule to never go in the medicine cabinet and eat and, and, and take pills. And they, they, friends invited them to a party and everybody brought their pills and dumped them into a big bowl. And, they, and you've heard of these parties. They've happened. And, and your child took a whole mouthful of uh, various medications and now your child's dying from direct disobedience from what you told them. If, if you do what's just, if you do what's right for your child, what will you do? You will save them. You will heal them. You will seek to restore them to the laws of health. They're dying because they're out of harmony with the laws of health, not because they broke a rule. That's not why they're dying. And you're going to seek to remedy, take out the toxin, get rid of the poison, put them back in harmony with the law of life. That's what God's justice is. The law reveals the attributes of God's character, and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. God did not change his law but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You can't, you can't change the law because the law is perfect protocol for life. So therefore, you have to fix those who are out of harmony with it and restore them back to harmony with the law. Now get this next paragraph. You hear me quote this one hundreds of times you've been coming to class, but we're just reading paragraph to paragraph through this section of it is finished. The law requires a legal payment to pay for your crimes and sins to the heavenly magistrate. No, that's the penal lie. That's what, that's what our church leaders tell us fraudulently all the time. The law requires righteousness. Why? For the same reason the law of respiration requires you breathe. The law of respiration requires you breathe. Well, that's not fair. That seems rather arbitrary. No, that's how life is built. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed. Remember, character cannot be created. Developed by the exercise of his human abilities, his human brain. Developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men, second Adam, new head of the human family, new human um, branches to the new human family tree that stem from Christ now instead of from Adam. His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they have remission of sins that are passed through the blood payment appeasing the Father's wrath. No, they have remission through God's forbearance. He was never against us. Love keeps no record of wrongs, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. God was never our enemy. He's always for us. It's whole penal, legal, satanic lie that makes you think God has to do something, and then we get a remission of sins through some legal means. It's all lie. Through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men, imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just, do the right thing, 
and be the justifier, the one who sets right or puts right all those who trust Jesus. It's the right thing to provide the remedy. It's the right thing to apply the remedy. It's the just and righteous thing to restore sinners who are dying of sin disease into holiness and righteousness by the application of what he's achieved for our behalf. Next paragraph. By substituting, now notice where we are today. Notice the struggle from the church in the dark ages. Notice the next words. By substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. What kind of laws do humans make? Imposed law. The, sadly, much of the Adventist leadership thinks this means, this words here means simply what day of the week you go to church on. It does not. The entire philosophy of everything depends on how you understand God's law. If you believe God's law works like human law, then you will always conclude God is the source of inflicted pain and death because if because justice requires God to, to sustain and enforce his law, and therefore he must kill and torture sinners in the end. And thus God becomes satanic in character when you accept the lie that, that God's law works like human law. Only by returning to worshiping the creator and realizing his laws of the design protocols emanate from his own being as he constructed the universe to operate in harmony with his own nature and that deviations from that remove us from life. Then we come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. We're worshiping the creator or we're worshiping the creature. But by substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. This work is foretold in prophecy of the great apostate power, which is the representative of Satan is declared. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand. Yes, and look at what's happened when the people who claim to believe Christ believe that God runs his universe like a Caesar runs Rome. Look at the horrible things people have done in the name of Christ. Notice, notice this. Men will surely set up their laws to counterwork the laws of God. They will seek to compel the consciences of others. And in their zeal to enforce these laws, they will oppress their fellow man. Well, this certainly happened in the Dark Ages over the issues of worship and, and how you uh, uh, believed. But it happened in the last three years over COVID. And sadly, many church leaders failed. They were blind Blind leading the blind. They could not recognize the beastly methods of coercion of conscience that Satan was employing in their very healthcare institution, churches, and schools because they've accepted that God's law works like human law. And once you accept that, you accept some authority to tell you the answer. And they couldn't find a Bible text or an Ellen White quote anywhere that said, thou shalt not take mRNA injections into your body. And because they couldn't find it, they couldn't understand. They, this is not a religious issue. This is a healthcare issue. And it's righteous in their mind to coerce people to put things in their spirit temple that they don't want because it's not religious. That's what you get when you have a rules-oriented system. We can't find a rule against it, so it must be okay. Continuing on. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will continue until the end of time. And in heaven, the warfare began against God's law. There was no Sabbath yet, folks. Earth hadn't been created. Adam and Eve hadn't been created. God hadn't rested on the seventh day of the creation of this planet because it hadn't happened yet. Understand, if, you, if you're an Adventist and you have this idea that the warfare, which is going to continue to the end of time, is going to be a question over the Sabbath, it's only of what the Sabbath represents. The Sabbath is a sign of creatorship and design law 
It came about by creation and thus symbolizes or represents God's kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. When God stopped using power and God rested and left beings free. This is the the revelation of what the Sabbath symbolizes. When you replace that with a day that became a special day by legislation and which requires coercive enforcement, then you're going down the trail of beastly things. It's not about the days. It's about the systems. Are we worshiping the creator? Worshiping an imperial dictator. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will continue until the end of time. Every man will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided. What kind of obedience? What method are we employing in ourselves in how we treat other people? During COVID, everyone decided, are you willing to use the power of the state? Are you willing to use coercive force to coerce other people's consciences? That's what law you apply to yourself and how you treated your family and neighbor. All will be called to choose between the law of God, truth, love, and liberty, and the laws of men, coercive enforcement. Here, the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed by the law we choose to apply to ourselves and how we treat others. And all will show where they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Satan and all who have joined with him in rebellion will be cut off. Sin and sinners will perish, root and branch. Notice, cut off, let go. God will stop using power to hold at bay what sin does. God will stop sustaining and keeping them alive. We'll let them reap what they have sown, as it says in Galatians. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature will reap destruction. Next paragraph. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life. And when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God. He separates from God and cuts himself off from life. He is alienated from life, from the life of God. Christ says, all that hate me love death. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character, reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the result of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. But that same glory is going to give life to all the righteous and we will be radiating it like Moses was coming off the mountain. The fires of God's presence are not harmful. It's unremedied sin. And then the last paragraph of this section, at the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. Had Satan and his host been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin, not an inflicted punishment from God. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as as an evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. The point being is God has to, this is why at the cross it was finished, but we're continuing on. Why Satan had to be continued because the the principles and the distinction between imposed law and design law have to be borne out and, and seen because the only way to actually eliminate sin from the universe is not to eliminate Satan, but it's to eliminate the lies about God and his law that cause us to be afraid of him and cause us to become like Satan, even if Satan doesn't exist anymore. And that's what God has to do. And he does it through a revelation of the truth and the application of his principles in the hearts and minds of his followers as we live out his principles. All right, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for what you've done for us. We could have never achieved it. We would have never known it if you hadn't sought us out on your mission of redemption. 
We pray that your spirit will come, help connect the dots, help solidify these realities into our character. Give us the ability to live out your design law principles of truth, love, and freedom, that our characters will be developed to be just like Christ. And it's no longer our old, fear-ridden, self-centered selves living anymore, but it is you living in us, the hope of glory. We pray in your holy name. Amen.